The Sour Hour is meant for the serious brewer. The Sour Hour may contain some seriously funkified content. The Sour Hour is not for the faint of heart. So exercise some damn discretion, would you please? Sheesh. And now, here's the Sour Hour with Jay Goodwin. We are back again. Got Creature Comforts on the show. Got Blake on the line. Sour Hour. I'm your host, Jay. We're in Concord. You know that. Scott's here. Hi. Bevo's not. She's up in Portland. Join her tomorrow. Yes, tomorrow. Uh, So nothing's really up. Listen live on the app. (laughs) I don't know how you'd hear that if you're not already doing it, but that's where we are. Yep. You can call in. We'll try to answer the phone. Email us, Scott at thebrewingnetwork.com, Jay at thebrewingnetwork.com, and subscribe, leave feedback, question mark, iTunes. <laughs> Review of the week, we are good. Yes, but you can, uh, but please leave reviews, of course, for the show. It helps tremendously with uh, climbing the charts, mm-hmm. and uh, thanks to everybody who's already done it, and if you haven't done it, please do. Yeah, we have a lot of reviews, but, yeah. you know, we want more, and it helps people find us, and we will read them on the air. All right. Uh, I did I was uh, did shoot Blake a quick text during the break to tell him how much we're enjoying the beer so far. And he uh, basically promised that the next beers we're drinking are even better, yes. which is hard to imagine. But uh, right now we've got Subtle Alchemy open in front of us. Blake, can you tell us a little bit about this one? Yes. So do you have blend one? Or, I mean, sorry, do you have blend two or three open? Two currently. Okay. So uh, the Subtle Alchemy is a series that we started up, I guess, a package that, uh, oh man, spent some time. I blended those and packaged the first three blends up in January of 2017. And the idea was to kind of take individual voices through our wood cellar and be able to create a, you know, a unique composition by virtue of that blend that for all intents and purposes is not recreatable because we just kind of have these unique flavors, different barrels, things like that. And we're like, okay, you know, I'll blend them together. And this is just kind of the snapshot. So it's an ongoing series. Um, blend number two is unique for us in the sense that it, it, it focuses on American oak, which we don't really normally have in our mixed fermentation cellar. But that particular beer, two thirds of it is aged in American oak. Um, and then I brought in some French oak just to give it some balance. But after tasting a few of the different projects in the wood cellar, I kind of started developing this idea uh, of flavor pattern between the different uh, voices of kind of like cherries and cream was kind of the idea. So um, the oldest part of that is uh, actually a, a grisette we make, usually all aged in stainless, but I threw it in an American oak barrel on second use Balaton cherries for about two years. And then I blended in, let's see, uh, actually we had a stray barrel full of Athena that was re-inoculated that was uh, American oak barrel from a, a local winery. And then the third one is, uh, is actually uh, Golden Door. 
that you guys just had after it was like in the French Open about 10 months. So blending those three together, it kind of brought together the idea of like a nice, subtle cherry quality, definitely some vanilla and American oak lusciousness. And it's just kind of, it's gotten to a point now where I think it's all kind of coming together and, and making it pretty succinct and, and nice. Yeah, this is very good. When you do so many different small projects and find the need to blend them together, do you ever find your mixed culture getting to like a, a shelf life in the oak barrel at all? Like, so you're aging it out for a really long time. I think sometimes what can happen is you're trying to either, you know, extract more flavor from those second use cherries or the American or French oak. And while you're waiting for that extraction, do you ever find yourself having to say like, okay, this is like getting a little past prime or what's your experience with that? Yeah, 100%. I feel pretty confident with our cellar storage conditions and our uh, mixed culture for 12 months. I don't expect a whole lot of loss during that time as far as what goes wrong. After that, it starts getting a little more hairy, and that certainly uh, exponentially gets uh, more and more as we go on. Um, so we don't top up, and while I do have the humidor fire running in our barrel room, it, it stays dry a lot because our AC is running constantly because this uh, our barrel room is 65 degrees even when it's 100 outside, so it, it runs a lot sometimes. So we'll see a fair amount of evaporation, and that loss will lead to acetic acid development and then uh, ethyl acetate as well and so we'll, we'll dump those barrels as that develops i would guess in general for a project if you talk like a, a 30 barrel project as it goes into wood we'll see approximately 10 percent loss maybe where it just we're dumping it it's not good maybe a little more from time to time depending on how long it ages well, this is very good this is totally free from any of those uh, acetic acid or ethylastic concerns what about the American versus French oak. You mentioned you don't incorporate that much American oak. What's the, the reasoning behind that, and why do you do it when you do do it? Generally speaking, I like French oak for its... It, it doesn't really want to call a whole lot of attention to itself after it's been used a little bit by a winery, which is nice. Uh, American oak has a very strong presence, and obviously we've got a bunch of whiskey barrels that are all American oak, but you know we put a lot, most of the time that's going to have a stout or a barley wine or something like that in them. With our oak cellar, I've, I've kind of gotten to the point now where I've started to lean in a new direction recently, I would say over the last year or so, where I'm getting most of my wine barrels from a, a friend's winery actually in North Georgia that uses all French oak, and um, I think they make good wines. They're called Yona Mountain Vineyards, and um, like Arcadiana we tasted on the last show was mostly aged in those, those barrels. And then the American oak is something I just don't seek out, and so, like, for example, with this beer, Soto Alchemy Blend 2, we just kind of had a few laying in our laps where someone was like, hey, try this or take this, and it was from very early on in our brewery's lifetime. So we we're like, yeah, and we just took them and kind of put in there what we had available to us. And those those unique voices were actually made more out of you know necessity than design. But the design came in when I was like, man, I got all these little things popping around. I need to figure out what I can do with them. And then um, started coming up with the blends that, that I thought made them work. But even, you know, blending that beer um it's definitely got those second use cherries but i think there is uh when i put the blend in there was 
a little bit of acetic acid in one of those components that blended down to the point where, you know, there's like a threshold, you know, if you, there's, at some point it, it tastes acetic and at some point you just kind of get like a nice cherry kind of quality. And I thought it added to the cherryness, but then didn't present as acetic after the blend. I would agree. This, yeah, this beer is nice and smooth, but the cherries do pop out a little bit, especially for being second use. You mentioned another one of the components is uh, Athena that you had put into a barrel. How how commonly are you, or how often are you guys doing that? And what's your what's your goal when when it's not just a one off, or maybe it is just a one off? What's your goal with putting Athena in the oak barrel? Yeah, with that one, that was pretty much the only time we've ever done that. Um, like a few barrels showed up and it's like, hey, we got these, do you want them? And at that point in time, you know, we didn't have a whole lot of time to devote to the barrel program and, and where we we're sourcing all of our stuff. It's like, yeah, absolutely, we'll take it. And then Athena was one of the few beers we had around that it made sense to throw into them. So that was kind of built out of necessity. And I think a lot of great things can come from you know, working with what's put in front of you and just figuring out how to make it work. Uh, and we, we do that a lot now where I'm limiting like the fruit we use in this program. I'm really trying to lean on farmers that I can know and shake their hand. And sure, that means that we may not be able to put um, some other you know, exotic fruit um, in there, but it means I can make a difference in a, a person's life and help a family plant some crops and sustain, you know, their what they're doing at their house. So uh, we started, I started putting some lines in there. It's like, these, you know, hold true to our, our values. And so we're going to continue to do it that way. And then where those are fixed, you know, I can have my variables be you know, all over the place and, and adjust a few things at a time and kind of draw our house flavor by those things like we're going to get Yona Mountain barrels and we're going to use fruit from local farmers and we're going to use our mixed culture and then it kind of forces us to focus on other pieces to drive differentiation. When you put Athena in the barrels, it was like acidified, basically finished Athena? Yeah, yeah, it was it was just as you would have in a can sitting in the fermenter. And I was like, all right, well, let's just throw it into this barrel. Uh, if anything, it'll, it'll just be nice to put something in there that can wait until we find something better. But then we just kind of kept adding on. What yep. do you recommend for people who are you know trying your approach out, where you're you're wanting to work with local ingredients, local purveyors, local farmers? What are some of the practical challenges in that? Because I think a lot of people hear about that and you know that sounds good but what are some of the the challenges that come along with you know trying to be really local in the ingredients you're using yeah it's it's certainly certainly has a fair share of challenges and we've just really started putting our foot down on that you know in the last six months or so i'm fortunate where every wednesday like right now in our parking lot we have a farmer's market going on so i literally can walk out there and talk to the farmers that can supply us with strawberries for example or blueberries and so what's tough is if you're if you're going that route like for example we got an insane amount of rain this year during our strawberry season so I was looking to buy a thousand pounds of strawberries and I got 300 pounds of strawberries. So if you're trying to create a certain amount of volume, that gets very difficult. However, as I've started working with these guys, you know, three weeks after strawberry season, they're already buying the slats for next year's plants. And I said, you know what, commit, commit me to next year buying a thousand pounds from you guys. And they're like, all right, well, we'll get extra plants. And knowing that, you know, uh, allows them to invest into their farm because they're guaranteed to have some sort of uh, buyout from us and then 
how to handle those different varying sizes of fruit. You know, I was actually, I've got a tank that can handle a thousand pounds of strawberries, but handling 300 pounds was hard because there's a lot less volume. So I had to get kind of creative on what we were going to use to age that fruit in. And, you know, things just don't go always as planned. Uh, and you've got to be able to work with that. And luckily, we're at the point now where we're still building out this program and we're able to plan for it and make sure that um, these variances aren't variances that are going to break the program, but are variances that will help the program thrive. And when you think about the different fruits you guys have access to, what's, you know, on a on a pound per BBL basis, what's kind of the, the high end that you find yourself needing to use, maybe for the more subtle range of fruits? And what's what's kind of like the lower end for maybe a more intense fruit? Oddly enough, most of the fruits around Georgia, I feel like, are pretty softly spoken fruits. So when we've used blueberries and peaches in the past, we're in the four to five pounds per gallon range to get an expression that we enjoy. And I think coming from that, you get, we've gotten great peach expression. Blueberries still, I don't think, present like what all of us would think is blueberries, like a blueberry muffin, but I really enjoy the flavors they give off and become more like little grapes uh, to a certain degree. And then we uh, also source raspberries from a farmer, uh, an organic farmer up in Virginia. Those I think are a lot louder in their presentation. So we'll be somewhere in the one and a half to two pounds per gallon kind of range. And with all those, I certainly kind of follow along, we'll taste, see where we're at, and then blend more beer in there if, if it seems that we're not getting an, enough of a diversification of flavor and it's just too overwhelming. But um, with a lot of these guys, like strawberries, blueberries, and peaches, are I feel like are pretty notorious for being not huge screamers. Yeah, for sure. And what about when you get these different fruits and what, how do you handle the, the processing? I mean, I imagine... Some of the berries are maybe a little bit easier or, or, or maybe not than like a, a peach. Yeah, it certainly depends on how and when they're coming in. For strawberries, I wanted to be able to throw them all in just super fresh and ready to go. However, because we're working with local farms and their throughput isn't uh, going to work that way, where I can say, you know, give me a thousand pounds and I'll buy it all right now. Um, I'm picking up week after week as they're picking them. Um, so what I did is I would just collect it every week at the farmer's market and then take it to our hot freezer, put them into a container and freeze them uh, until storage. So they get frozen over the course of the month. And then from there, I'm going straight into beer and in our tank first purging and then uh, throwing beer in after that. When they're frozen, I've kind of gotten to a recent practice of letting them warm up a little bit before I bring in the fruit, or sorry, the beer. Not a ton, but just kind of thawing out a little bit and they kind of decompose a little and, and will you know release a lot of their juices at that point. And then I'll bring the beer in and like my strawberry beer is still warming up to fermentation right now. And then we'll start doing punch downs as those come. Blueberries, similar practice. Uh, peaches, uh, we haven't worked with peaches in a couple of years, but we're planning on doing it this year. And in Georgia, we've kind of got two seasons. We've got freestone peaches and clean stone season. Freestones and clean stones, stone being the pit and free or clean kind of gets self-explanatory where if you cut up on a peach, if your peach sticks to the pit, that's a, a clean stone. And if it opens up and the pit pops right out like an avocado, that's a free stone. So we've got some 
nice heirloom peaches that we've used before called Albertas, and they're a late season peach that tend to be a little uh, richer and juicier, less acidic, and they're freestones. So we will bring them in, and depending on the farming practices, you know, we'll either give them a wash or not. But the peaches we used before, we did. Um, we were storing them for a little bit, so we actually made like a little bit of a lemon juice and water very diluted solution just so it was slightly acidic to kind of help uh, clean the skins off if you will we did a little dunk in those and then we put them into large packages that we sucked all the air out of we did a vacuum pack on those and so we were able to get them all processed because it took us a few days uh, with the staff we had at that time uh, and then we brought them all in and the beer is ready uh, and then we just aged them in the beer uh, but that was that was a couple years ago so now we've got a little more infrastructure built to support it and do something similar though Awesome. Well, I think we have, uh, do we have one more beer left? Scott? We do. Yep. The blend number three. Awesome. Well, let's, uh, get to a quick break, but before we do mm-hmm. and have that other beer, I wanted to say thank you to, while we're speaking about fruit, Oregon fruit products, aseptic purees that are easy to use and convenient to store with no additives or artificial flavors, simply great expression of the raw fruit. They love working with brewers to help us innovate. Check them out. Fruitforbrewing.com, Oregon fruit, they bring fruit. To life, and maybe let's get out on a question. Sure. And uh, this question, Scott. Yes. And all the questions mm-hmm. are going to be brought to us by Dr. Lambic and his team at sourbeerblog.com. Check out the articles on sourbeerblog.com for a great written resource devoted to teaching you how to brew and blend sour beer at home. And now the Sour Beer Blog crew is opening up a new brewery and taproom in central Pennsylvania. Check them out. Mellow Mink Brewing at Mellow Mink. Right on. So do you guys think you could uh, tackle a spontaneous fermentation question? Why not? Okay. (laughs) This is from Stephen out in Bozeman, Montana. Stephen writes in, hey, Jay in Moscow. I've been listening to the podcast from the beginning and a few conversations on spontaneous fermentations, in particular those utilizing cool ships, have had me wondering if the reason for primarily brewing spontaneously fermented beers with cool ships during the fall and or winter months has more it being conducive to ambient cooling or the seasonality of the airborne microbiome. Uh, I know generally the populations of airborne microbes undergo seasonal changes as those of any other population, but I'm unclear on whether, say, the summer airborne microbiome would be less conducive somehow to bring high-quality spontaneously fermented beer, or are the colder months just more optimal because the cooling rate either matches better with the brewing schedules or the faster cooling somehow optimizes or discourages the growth of ideal or non-ideal microbes. Yeah, I'll, you know, not being the most experienced spontaneous brewer, I'd I'd put this answer out there as perhaps correct, which I guess you can take all my answers that way, but I'd say it has more to do with the cooling rate than anything. I think you are going to if you're mimicking lambic producers, then you know they've proven in, in in their climate that they are discouraging bad bacteria, encouraging good bacteria for sour beer production. If we're talking about amount of micro activity, I'd say probably the hottest part of the year has way more micro activity. It just has to come down to the cooling rate. So if you had something like a um, glycol jacketed cool ship that you could manipulate, arguable whether or not that's spontaneous at that point, right. but you know, perhaps that would produce a different beer. I'm not sure if it would be better or worse, but I'm, you might get more microactivity. But I don't know, Blake, what do you think? 
I think it's a combination of both. So we, I, I mean, I, certainly there's a huge aspect of the fact that you want to cool your wort in a certain amount of time to get to a certain temperature um, to favor the microbiological activity that you want. And I think generally speaking, in the time of year where it's colder outside, you have a lot less of the shitty bacteria growing. You know, if you think about just kind of disease in general, uh, you hear about, you know, a lot more bacteria outbreaks and, and things like that happening during the warmer months, I, I would I would think. Um, not to say that it's going to cause diseases, but it just kind of is an anecdotal representation of what's going on out there, uh, where I think you get more yeast that are kind of happy to be complacent and, and sit around during the colder months. It's funny. We actually did a beer with um, Gesture King that we put in the cool ship that was a little late in the season. So they actually have a, a copper piping that will run groundwater through the cool ship overnight. And we use that in our uh, beer we made together. I've heard updates that it's tasting good, but it's only been about a little over a year. And I think we're targeting two years before we uh, finish that beer off. So I think you can do it both ways. I, I know Trevor up at DeGard, where's that, Tillamook, Oregon? Um, he's making spontaneous beers around the clock or, you know, year round. So it, there's this kind of like, yes, answer, you're on the right track, but also there's going to be totally driven answers by where you are and what your process is and what's happening. And that's where it kind of gets down to where you're at. But I know um, when people talk about who have robust, I've sat through a lot of talks, I'm sure you have too, Jay, where, you know, you got guys like uh, Jason up at Allagash talking about how they're mapping their temperature and what's going on, that there's a lot more success in, in getting valued flavors out of their wort when they're brewing when it's cold outside. Thanks for the question, Stephen. Appreciate it, dude. All right. Should we get to a quick break and then open our final beer? Yes, please. All right. We'll be right back on the Sour Hour. Nico, listen, our lawyer said that we had to do this for one hour, and after this, we don't have to talk to each other for three more months until the next meeting. Come on, let's get out of here. I'm supposed to have more lines. I'm the professional. Hey, it's Sully. And I'm Nico. And we opened the 21st Amendment 10 years ago at 563 2nd Street in San Francisco, just two blocks from Giants Park, to make great beer and have a great time doing it. That's right, because to us, the 21st Amendment is more than just the right to make beer. It's the right to experiment, to be innovative, and just do things differently. And so now, we're putting our craft beer in cans. That's right, cans. You can find our world-famous Hell or High Watermelon Wheat Beer at Brew for Your Die IPA in the Northeast, Northwest, parts of the Midwest, and Alaska in cans and on draft. So next time you're at your local neighborhood pub or good beer store, be sure to ask for 21st Amendment in cans. Because everyone likes it in the can. Tasty Crack Cans. Tasty Crack Cans. Sour Hour. Blake from Creature Comforts joining us. I want to thank a couple more of our great sponsors. Perhaps while Scott fades this out and gets a beer. Oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, starting with Wine and Hop Shop. Wineandhop.com. Locally owned and operated for over 40 years. Most items are going to ship within 24 hours. 
to you guys, BN listeners, and you're going to get a flat $8 shipping rate on orders under 25 pounds. Enter BN shipping in the notes field of the shopping cart. The discount is going to be taken off after you check out. And for you Madison, Wisconsin residents, order your homebrew supplies online at wineandhop.com and then pick them up at Working Draft Beer Company, which is located on Wilson Street right across from Central Park. They're going to waive shipping and give you half off your first beer, and I think you should go try it out because they were very good. So check them out, wineandhop.com. Even if you're visiting Madison, this is Madison residence, but maybe maybe if you're visiting Madison and you want to pick it up, that could be, I don't know, we'll have to double check that. Yeah, visitors are welcome. But to get the deal, maybe. Yeah, you don't have to be a Madison resident. It says Madison residents. I mean, I, I'm saying it's Madison residents. I think it's a specific call out <laughs> to the locals, but yeah. it is not limited to the locals. Yeah. Speaking of limited, listen to the session. <laughs> and unlimited, listen to Bruce Strong, Dr. Homebrew, <laughs> Brewing with Style, Bikes and Beers, Heads and Tails, all of the other BN shows that aren't this one. All right. <laughs> so we've got another beer here yes we do oh this is number three subtle alchemy and what do we have here blake um so as we were kind of talking about earlier with hops and mixed fermentation this is a blend that i basically i think about this blend and i guess the way i think about blending in general i i grew up in playing band and in, in uh, middle school and high school and college doing marching band playing drums and concert band and all that so I, I try to think musically or i naturally do i guess and this one i'm i kind of try to think about how i can express a voice that is familiar based on hop flavors but doing it with different instruments and those instruments being like citrus zest actual hops uh fruit um all these different pieces and create a like instead of having a, a note or a melody kind of create you know chords and, and big voices where it's uh, you know creates kind of more of a symphonic kind of presentation so that was the goal with this one and, and part of that is a lot of different beers coming together that uh, either might be very hoppy like a brett pale ale to begin with or a mixed firm saison with um, like citrus zest in it or a beer with apricots in it or things like that. So they all kind of came together, all blended out of wood and uh, created this beer where it's hitting all the notes where I think like the high end of hop flavor, you get citrus zest and the low end would be like the funky apricot of stuff and then trying to present it all as one piece of flavor. Yeah, this is another another winner here. And I like, like the way you're describing your approach and comparing it to music. Maybe if you had to I guess more on a granular scale, just talk about how you approach blending, maybe just, you know, where you start, what tools do you use, how many people are involved? Could you walk us through your blending process? Sure, yeah. So um, it kind of depends on if I'm doing a project like this or a project like, you know, that was kind of always thought to begin and, and be together. So generally what I'll do, if it's um, a bottle like Arcadiana that we tasted on the last show, um, I'll have a set of those barrels uh, with all that beer in it. And, I'll, you know, I don't feel obligated to use all of the beer we have from a project um, in the release of that certain project because it gives us opportunity to blend those later, you know, and work with may work with fruit or whatever so i'll kind of do a quick rundown on the taste and i'll just taste every barrel 
write down kind of what I think that barrel offers. You know, whether it, it might offer um, a particular amount of acid or uh, stone fruit flavor, or just be more about the mouthfeel, or more about bitterness, or whatever it may be, and kind of jot down really quickly a note that I, where I think it stands, and kind of you, know, you can kind of taste it and. and have a good idea of where you think it is on its timeline of is this in a good spot does it still taste young is it is it taste like it's getting old you know how much longer can this sit in a barrel reliably things like that and then i'll use those things to kind of predict what i think is going to be a good blend um, as far as trying to have a bright attack to it which is kind of you know the first flavor um, having some nice body and also having some cohesiveness so it's not just a, a flabby mess and once I kind of get those strategies and have kind of my core idea of what I think it's going to be, I'll, I'll basically come up with a couple, like two or three different ideas of what the blend could be. And then I'll uh, use like a micropipette and take equal samples of each one, put into a glass, kind of run through the three different uh, glasses. And then knowing those differences in the blend and going back to my notes, I can kind of see how where I think those key differences are and how they either align or misalign with what I thought they would do. And then I'll come back like a week later, try it again, maybe make some adjustments or whatever based on what I thought the first time. And then after I get a blend that I feel like is really good, I'll kind of shop it around and just like a really easy litmus test. I'll put it in a glass and walk around the brewery and get people to taste it. And um, you know, if depending on how much their eyes light up or they don't or you know they say they taste something that's often it or not you know that will either send me back to the drawing board or give me some confidence to move forward but that's kind of what i do for those um for the projects that will be different it's very very similar except for i basically will taste all of the different base barrels that i feel like can be a component to the project because I mean I, you don't really talk about the other side very often but you have obligations you know you have you have beer that needs to go into one blend or it's got to get out of here or it's going to go bad and you're trying to reach a certain volume for a blend so it's size enough to where you can release it you know you have all these other kind of complications based on what you're doing and then I'll taste through all those all those options and kind of after a couple of times you know the first time i may not even do anything come back a week later kind of do it again and it's like okay yeah there's some common threads here and i could see how these ideas could work together and that's really largely how the subtle alchemy project works where it's like okay i start to see how these can work together and then i'll come back again and tr you know maybe try one barrel and leave out the other one but generally start to realize how the theme can work because if you have an apricot beer and a citrus zest beer and a hoppy beer, you know, they don't always immediately scream that they're going to work together. Um, but then after you start realizing like, oh, these flavors are related and that may because I tasted a cocktail or a dish of food or another wine or something. And I was like, okay, yeah, I can see how all these flavors work together in this. Let's go back to the, the barrels and try that. And um, then I'll start to blend those and, and see how I can compose those flavors together to make them all play together. And, you know, after I blend them and do the same kind of deal with a micro pipette, and it either works or it doesn't. And then if it doesn't, just move on. Try something new. Can I quickly suggest that the Rare Barrel and Creature Comforts do a collab and it be called Bright Attack? Oh, that's fun. Is that a term you frequently use, Blake? Bright Attack? I, lo I love that. Yeah, that, so I, I used to play the drums, uh, like snare drum and marching band, and the attack is always the first note, and like how you approach it is talked about pretty thoroughly so i've carried that over to 
flavor. So like when I taste something, the attack to me is the first flavor and I want it to, you know, I always, it's like telling a story. You got to have a nice beginning, middle and end, I guess. Sure. I see. So you're, you're not using it as like a salt to the senses. You're using it as like uh, the initial impression. Yeah, exactly. I still like the idea though of a collab called Bright Attack. Mm-hmm. Thanks for giving away yeah. the name. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> you're welcome. Awesome. Blake, when you're, and I'm down for the collab by the way, but uh, when you're shopping around on the record, the, uh, the kind of blend pre-package how much do you see it drift from hey this is what we blended and you know put into the tank versus now you know the bottles you know you said what might be six months into aging how much does it change in that time i mean that's a really hard question to answer and i'd be interested to know what you think as well um for your beers but so this beer that you're tasting is was bottled January 3rd, I think, 2017. So it's got a, almost a year and a half on it. And what I think I've noticed most from that beer is um, from blending it, it kind of had all these flavors that lined up. And then after it you know, kind of went through its not-so-great phase and got back to where it was you know, in the bottle, it takes a few months to get there. And then it's like, okay, this is back to what I imagined it was like before blending. But then I'll notice even tasting it since then, like, okay, this time the citrus zest is popping, or this time the apricots are a little more, you know, st- standing out. And it just kind of goes through phases where I feel like there's a different highlight on a different note than before, but I can still pick apart all of the representation, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. I think in the rare barrel beers, we see actually a surprising amount of bottle-to-bottle and age consistency. Now, there are certain ingredients that I think fall off with time, but I don't think I've perceived any ingredients getting more pronounced. Maybe save ginger. Ginger has done something that it just kind of transforms into something new. And if you have one of our older ginger beers, which is called Sour Tooth Tiger, and one of our new ones well if you have the old one on its own you're like wow this is holding up really well it's got great ginger character and then you have the new one and it's kind of like oh wait no that's ginger what's so what's this old one Hmm. it's like it's some weird transformation that i still really like but it's just something else but if you have it on its own you you know it's ginger Mm -hmm. before you actually try what you then go oh this is what was the last did you do sour tooth in 2017 or was 16 the last year? We did 16. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I love that beer. Ah, uh, I do too. Um, but so yeah, in the Subtle Alchemy 3 you're tasting now, what would you say is the strongest flavor? That, you know, that's interesting you bring that up because I really feel like they all go together really well, and that's not dodging the question. I just kind of like before you walked us through the ingredients in the beer, I kind of just the main thing that popped out to me was good. It's like, this tastes good. Yeah, the ingredient that we most get is good. Good tasting. Um, I get like wa- like wine grape in a pronounced fashion from blend number three here. Mm-hmm. Oh, this- cool. I might pick out citrus as, as number one. I probably went citrus, hops, and then apricot, but I knew there was something else besides the citrus and hops because it was, I don't know. I'm just, I guess I'm just familiar with apricot, so right. that all made sense, but it's really well done and balanced together 
quite well. Yeah, that, that, that's kind of the thing. There, there really is no like standout flavor because everything is so um, integrated and yeah, balanced, like you said. One thing we found is that we'll do some pre-blending and sometimes things will stick out a little bit and then we blend a base into a tank, whether it has ingredients or not, and it's just better than it was pretty much always in the pre-blend. And then kind of the same thing in the bottle after the fact. Some people might describe it as, you know, certain flavors falling off a little bit, but to me, they kind of just land in a safe spot. And, you know, we're lucky that that's what happens. Um, But we try to account for it because we know some things will fall a little bit over time and some things will hold a little bit stronger. It's like all the flavors just kind of get to know each other and learn how to hang out with each other a little bit better. Um, I always kind of think that they're all still there. They just become more cohesive to a certain degree. And I think that's probably why we wait on our bottles so long before we release them, just because I like it to settle into a place where it's, it's like, oh, okay, here's a, a kind of pure, cohesive idea that doesn't taste like it's a bunch of different pieces, but it's here's this one beer in it, and it's... Hopefully, yeah, we we go for nuance pretty often, for better or worse. But yeah, we're we're going for beers that are very nuanced and drinkable and, and subtle. I guess next we'll come out with extreme alchemy. <laughs> <laughs> Imperial alchemy, I like it. Let me mention quickly that the uh, the, the sort of watercolory branding on these twenty twos is uh, is really cool. Did you purposely sort of think you wanted to go a different direction with the the way the sort of branding looks on the the bigger bottles? Absolutely, and I, I would be remiss to not mention um, we have a staff member named Melissa Merrill who paint who hand paints. She's painted all of the labels you guys have seen on our bottles. She's extremely talented, and for the subtle alchemy in particular, I wanted it to just feel different than the rest of our bottles. Uh, we, we charge more for those beers, they take more time, and they aren't gonna be made again ever. Uh, it's kind of the only example that of that beer that we'll ever have. And so as we move through the series, we kind of, she'll come up to me and be like, so what, what, what color are you feeling for this one or whatever? Um, and we're, you know, we're starting to collaborate a little bit more on that as we move forward. But uh, I kind of came to the uh, marketing and, and development team and with that one in particular and I was like let's let's make this feel like it's wine and change how it feels you know and so that's where it landed well it's really cool and yeah she she's got a she's got a cool touch to her to her work and it uh, this is a good spot to mention that guys like Blake and UJ you guys toil over creating all this exceptional beer and of course you're looking for a way to package that stuff that is going to let the casual glancer know the blood and sweat that went into this product craft brew creative will assure that your branding reflects that outstanding craft. You know mm-hmm. Ryan, the man behind Craft Brew Creative, from his show that you've heard on his the spots for his show on this show, uh, Branding Brews. And uh, Ryan is uh, the man when it comes to graphic design and giving your brewery uh, its own, uh, or your brand, I should say, its, its own voice. Logo design, branding strategy, websites, labels, tap handles. Because of Craft Brew Creative's great relationship with the Brewing Network, uh, Ryan is going to offer you 15% off of your first design or branding project. Good for up to 300 bucks in savings. So check them out, craftbrewcreative.com, uh, for details. And if you mention the Brewing Network, let Ryan know that we sent you, and uh, he'll he'll hook you up with those savings. Craftbrewcreative.com. Elevate your craft brand. Yeah, you don't want to make any mistakes on your branding. Like, you know, any. that's what people are going to see when... 
before they drink your beer. So That's right. Definitely hit him up. And speaking of mistakes, Scott, uh-huh. let's, uh, you know, Blake has been very generous with his time. Yes. So let's, and his beer. So thank you for that, Blake. And oh, no uh, let's get him out of here on our last and favorite question. Blake, what do you think the biggest mistake in sour beer making is? Oh, man. Um, <laughs> no one's ever prepared. They're always like, oh, my gosh. Oh. And I, I totally knew this was coming, too, because you know, I listen I listened along to the show. Um, you know, the, the easy thing, obviously, do, do research, do read, do your information, get out there. Uh, that's very important. I think the biggest mistake, assuming that you've done some research and try to educate yourself, is not tasting your beer and being a trained taster and paying attention to flavor. Like I love tasting things, food, cocktails, beer, wine, you name it, I wanna try it. Um, Just to kind of put it in the memory bank of how flavors can work together. And if you don't pay attention to what you taste in your life and then not pay attention to what's going on in your beer, like train your palate and taste your barrels and get to know what they're saying to you because that's the feedback loop, you know? Taste it before you blend it, taste it before you you know, while you're brewing it, taste it after you package it, taste it while it's in the bottle, and then just keep trying it and then develop a repertoire so you have an understanding of what's happening. That's the biggest thing is people not tasting their beer and then getting to the end. They're like, oh, this this has got this problem in it. It's like, yeah, I probably could have figured that out a long time ago if you, you tasted it. So that'd be my biggest thing is just make sure you taste the beer. That's a really good suggestion. And you know what? That's a something that you can't get from this show. You can't get it from Milk the Funk. You can't get it from reading American Sour Beers. You got to taste. You got to get out there and have that sensory experience. So that's not something that's on the internet or Instagram or anything like that. So You just got to experience it. Yep. Get out there, get that experience, and, and learn from some of the best. Like Creature Comforts. And Blake, so thanks so much for hooking us up with this beer and your knowledge once again. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Uh, it was a lot of fun. Awesome. Good well, man, I'll have Blake. have you back real soon just because I like your beer. So. Hashtag Rare Barrel Creature Comforts Collab. And what's the name again, Scott? Bright Attack. Yeah, it's kind of hard to say. Mm, yeah, but it's easy Bright to taste. Attack. It's hard to say, but easy to drink. That could be the the, the sort of like subtitle, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah the tagline. Yeah. Thanks again to Blake. Thanks, Blake. Let's uh, take our final break. But before we do, let's thank Neshaminy uh, Creek Brewing. Yes. Great beers. They're out in the Philly beer scene. In fact, they're the three times Philly beer scene magazine brewer. The year two-time GABF Vienna style lager medal winner. Dose bronze medals for smoke lager. Renovated tasting room. Variety of beer styles, hoppy beers, sessionable beers, lagers, saisons, sours, free brewer tours on Saturdays. New second location opening sometime before I'm reading this. <laughs> Check out NashamityCreekBrewing.com. Last break. Yes. And then we'll get out of here. Yep. We'll be right back on the Sour Hour. When I order a beer, I want my server to know more about it than I do. I want someone who enjoys good beer and loves helping others enjoy it too. I want someone who knows how to pour a perfect pint for every beer style. 
I want a Cicerone. The Cicerone Certification Program is creating the type of people who help you enjoy great beer. Home brewers and craft beer lovers know beer is more flavorful and complex than ever, and it takes some serious knowledge to store and serve beer right. Cicerone's no beer. There are three levels in the Cicerone Program. Certified Beer Server, Certified Cicerone, and Master Cicerone. Cicerones are truly the sommeliers of beer. The best beer locations have a certified Cicerone on staff. Relaxed and unpretentious. Cicerones are tested on storing and serving beer, beer styles, flavor and tasting, the brewing process and ingredients, and pairing food with beer. Learn more about your next beer guide at Cicerone.org. Certified Cicerone, because it takes top talent to present a perfect pint. back on the sour hour great couple shows with blake from creature comforts great beers very thankful for that also thankful to be in this beautiful city with beautiful weather we're in right now me too just happens to be concord california yep when it's beautiful downtown where we're uh, as you guys well know by this point located with the uh, brewing network's headquarters and the hop grenade and the city of concord wants you to know Dear uh, brewery hopeful or brewery owner or brew pub starter or whatever, uh, that it's a very welcoming welcoming place, Concord, is to uh, start or grow your business. It's the largest city in Contra Costa County. It's, you don't, people don't realize how big Concord actually is. Concord is a central location in the Bay Area. We have really strong demographics here, established brewery-friendly community. It's an ideal spot to grow, uh, start or expand your, your beer-related whatever. It's a historic downtown. The park here is amazing. Uh, the downtown is really... In, in a particularly vibrant part of its of its lifespan, business parks, industrial parks, uh, all over the place. Tons of office workers uh, looking mm-hmm. to eat lunches everywhere. The economic development team wants to hear from you, Brian Nunnally. Give him a call nine two five six seven one three zero one eight nine two five six seven one three zero one eight. Give Brian a call and uh, talk it over with him. Even if you're just having the beginnings of thoughts, I don't know if I even want to expand, but you know, it's like a it's not a hard no. And so I don't know, maybe I'll explore possibilities. Concord's a great place to explore those possibilities. 925-671-3018. That is Brian Nunnally and the city of Concord. Yeah. You never know until you call and let them know that you heard about it on the Brewing mm. Network. Yes. That also makes a huge difference. So, Thank you so much. Yes. All right. That's it. That's all I got. <laughs> okay, you want, we have uh, we have a little time here left. Uh, it all is going to feel like a little bit of a come down after uh, Blake and his uh, insight and beers, but mm-hmm. we can uh, do a couple questions, maybe. Let's do it. All right, here is Lacto question from Jeff Post. Jeff says, hi, guys. Love the show. I just started listening about a year ago after I listened to a bunch of other BN shows, and I had a question. He says, I am making another sour beer this weekend. I have made a sour before. It was a blueberry sour. He lists the recipe below. I'll, I'll go through it in a second. He said, I made it with a uh, WLP Lacto vial before. I monitored the pH. After about 24 to 36 hours, it got down to 3.5, and I kettle soured it. It turned out great. All my friends loved it. My question is this. 
I want to make another sour this weekend with the same recipe, but I want to try using unpasteurized Greek yogurt instead. What do you recommend for the starter before pitching? So here quickly is the recipe. Uh, 500 grams of rice hulls. Uh, it's, he's got bohemian pills. He's got wheat malt, flake rye, flake wheat. And then he pitched WB06 dry wheat beer yeast. And then he used some blueberry extract. He says he soaked the blueberries in vodka for 30 days, and then he blended and pitched after primary. Hmm. Does it all make sense? Yeah, except when he says he's adding lacto, I'm not sure if he's adding lacto after primary fermentation, but he also mentions kettle souring. Um, I made a sour beer before, a blueberry sour, and I made it with WLP lactovial before. I think he means the batch before. Monitor mm-hmm. the pH after 24 to 36 hours. It got down to 3.5, and I kettle soured it. That's where I'm confused, because usually you would kettle sour for a right. day or two, right. and then it would get down. Well, I guess I could answer it. What do you think about okay. Yeah, sure. Let's, let's, let's go with that. What do you think about using unpasteurized Greek yogurt instead of a lactovile? Uh, sure. Yeah, do that. And if you want, I don't know the dose rate you're going to want, but if you look up craft brewers conference and kettle souring you'll find free just on google a pdf from that presentation with our friend ben edmonds from brigside uh sean burke from formerly of uh the commons who's at a new brewery out in uh, oregon and uh ben love from gigantic they did uh, and they're going to do another kettle souring conference at the uh, homebrew con check that out and i believe hmm i don't remember which of those brewers used yogurt, but it's like Nancy's organic Greek yogurt, and they used a 48-ounce thing per some BBL number, and that's where you can get your dosing rate. But uh, I don't think you need to make a starter, because I don't think they did. So There you go. No starter. Easy peasy. If you have more details you want to add, Jeff, uh, you can write back in or call in and let us know, and we'd be happy to do a more in-depth a discussion and thank you for writing in the meantime here yeah. is a humble brag from chris humble oh i like it <laughs> chris says i'm sitting on my back porch here in coastal louisiana which in summer is like sitting right next to the barbecue pit mm-hmm. sampling a one-year-old rare barrel blonde base fermented with 1318 primary and east coast east sen valley blend secondary the keg was also dosed with port wine and light toast white oak spirals. Wow. I owe this fantastic beer to y'all. Cheers. Chris is the uh, head home brewer at Directional Brewing, and he goes on to list a bunch of uh, rejoiner suggestions oh, great. and then says, You're welcome. Uh, I will work those in uh, in a future show during the review segment. Awesome. So, that sounds like a fantastic beer if you have any more. You can write Scott at the network.com and we'll send you a place to send that if you want us to humble brag on your behalf yeah. when we taste your awesome we'll take beer. Take some crawfish, too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and just, yeah, dry ice, crawfish. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Thank you for writing, Chris. Here is a message from Joel. Joel Robinson is the founder and owner of Hunter and the Harp Meadery in Australia. Mm. Mm. 
Joel says, good day, legends. My question is in relation to furthering the sour education into meads, and if the sour hour would be willing to run a show focused on them and how they differ or are similar in process to sour beers. Sour meads are becoming quite a thing in the U.S., not so much here in Australia yet, but we want to change that. Two U.S. Hmm. meaderies I can think of are Golden Coast and Caw Point Meadery, that as uh, well as Hunter in the Harp, which is uh, Joel's spot down under, uh, are into experimenting with this style. So some initial questions to maybe wet our whistles. Would the bacteria and or yeast like Lactopedia Brett have a greater chance of growth in the simple sugar media such as honey as opposed to the complex sugars found in wort? Do you have an initial thought on whether that would maybe be true? Mm, I would think it would have a harder time just because no one uses that. No one uses simple sugar to grow. Not to say it wouldn't grow, but then I'd be worried that after the fact, well, I mean, I guess if it's if that's all it's doing, then that doesn't matter. Maybe it would attenuate further, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's worth checking out for sure. Sure. Joel goes on. How does buffering with potassium bicarbonate differ from using chalk? Considering honey must is lacking in nutrients, he says, we add staggered nutrients with meads, and potassium is beneficial to yeast growth. How does the buffering solution ratio change at all? And are the same yeast stress responses that are found in beer likely to carry over in meads? I recall in a previous show that something like 14 out of 16 off flavors were developed due to stressed yeast. Would the same flavors occur with honey rather than malts? Anyway, he says, I have a lot more questions and could talk sour meads all night, uh, but let's see if that's something that, that spikes our interest. And he says, P.S., if it helps, I could send some sour meads across the pond. Do we want to explore sour mead? Yeah, that sounds good to me. I am crossing many ponds to come to Australia, oh, so yeah. I'm not sure where his meadery is located. Uh, it's for, for ANHC you're going, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's see. Hunter and the Harp Mead, New South Wales. Do we know where that is? No. <laughs> no. Okay. So where is it? <laughs> I, I'm going Wales. to Melbourne, and that's all. And I know Sydney. That's okay. Um, oh, gosh. New, lol. New South Wales is enormous. <laughs> that doesn't really tell me much. Hunter and the Harp. Come on, dude. Hunter and the Harp. Where's Google Maps is failing me? It's okay. This is great podcasting. I know. Oh, here. Let's just use this website. That, that would be smart. Yeah, I would just click the link in his email and stopping such a tool. Oh, no. Oh, the link is broken. The link is broken. We're not allowed to go there. Okay. Well, in any case, I'm not. we'll we'll find out exactly where it's located, uh, and then I'll write Joel off the air, and we'll see if we can explore a possible sour meat show. Yeah. And if you want one of us to try it, you can just send it to wherever I'm going to be in Melbourne in October. There you go. So we can do that. Did we do the the CO2 lines, having separate CO2 lines question? No. I can't remember. This is the last. Let's do this one last one. This is from Peter. Uh, Peter Kramer says, hey, guys, love the show. I've heard many times that brewers should use separate draft equipment when it comes to serving sour beer to prevent cross-contaminating clean beers, of course. But does this advice extend to the CO2 hookups as well? What are the odds of infecting a CO2 line? Do you advise using a totally separate CO2 tank, lines, connections, et cetera, when it comes to serving sour beer on draft? Yeah, it's a pretty good idea. I think there's a chance to cross-contaminate your CO2 lines because if you think about how normal beers are usually carbonated, on average, I would say it's a little lower than draft beers, although you're going to crank your draft system up pretty good to serve them, I bet. I would just worry if the keg of sour beer is higher carbed that the higher initial pressure could actually just shoot beer back into the CO2 line. Hmm. If you keep positive pressure, you should be okay. But, yeah, I mean, 
I don't see any problem with swapping out those lines and keeping them separate. Probably a good idea. Even if you just like split off the lines and they come from the same tank, but it's just way upstream that they're teed off. Mm-hmm. And you can just clean those, you know, like you clean your regular draft lines uh, on a regular basis. I think that'd be fun. For sure. All right, are we done? I think we're Alrighty. done, Scott. Super early. Look at this. Look at this. I'm not, it's still, you know. We filled the time, but yeah. Well, and you're off early to in the day. Portland, and I'm off to work as well. So, we're, but none of both of us are just beginning our work excursions on this That's particular true. day. That's true. But uh, thank you for your help today, Scott. You're welcome. Great man. job. Have Thanks a great to, time in Oregon. Thank you. Thanks to uh, Blake from Creature Comforts. Thanks, Blake. for great beer, great info. Thanks to the sponsors, the listeners, and until next time, stay sour. I'm down for the clap, by the way.